0: In the Gospel of Mark, we've been in the Gospel of Mark since Easter. This is our very first service uh, series in in, the, in our church, and the reason we're in the Gospel of Mark is because the Gospel of Mark is going to do for our church what is most important. It is going to center us on the good news of Jesus, and so each week we uh, get a taste, a flavor, uh, an aspect, or a facet of the good news of Jesus, and this week. I believe that we get a glimpse of why the good news is good news in a way that very much hits us in, our, in, our, in, our, in the center of our lives. And the, the, the way that it hits us is that it gives Jesus' answer to the question that I believe is dwelling in every one of our hearts and every one of our minds every day. And that question is this, how do we live a life that will be truly great? How do we live a life that will be truly great? That that question matters. And you might say, oh, I don't think such questions in my mind. But, But yes, you do. Because no one here is pursuing a wasted life. No one here is pursuing a mediocre life. No one here is trumpeting and celebrating their failures and their shortcomings. Every single one of us is pursuing the great life, and we're evaluating our life as as whether it is good or bad. And as we come into the, the holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, a lot of us feel almost a focus of evaluation upon ourselves regarding what did we accomplish in this last year? What are we doing? What are our goals? Uh, are we better than we were this time last year? And these things are always uh, versions of the question, how do I know if, I, if my life is truly great? Feeling like you're living a great life is, is how many of us answer the question, who am I? We want to answer that question with something about we're we're doing well. The the question, how do I live a great life, is is the same question, how do I make myself somebody? Or how do I know that I am somebody? And the question, uh, how do we live a great life, is the question that is motivating so many messages that are all around you all the time. You go to social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and they are plastering pictures that are supposed to be examples of the great life. And you're supposed to say, how do I look compared to that? And I need to post pictures that show that my life is is equivalent or better than that. Every commercial break is a demonstration of of a car that's a little nicer than yours or a TV that's a little bigger than yours. And the implicit message that this is the missing piece to the great life. And we chase that. Right? And uh, we, we chase experiences because we, we have this understanding that our great that, that, that living a great life is critically important. And we live in a world that says the way to a great life is to get to number one, to climb, to achieve, to influence, to be the best. And we are all in that place. Some of us uh, deal with how do I live a great life by feeling regret. We recognize that we have, we have aged out of our prime. We have aged out of, our, out of the economy's place of, of, of desire for us. And so we see the people behind us are replacing us, are replacing our jobs, are, are taking our income, are getting the accolades that, that we want. And so we are living with the dimness of the great life seeming to be behind us. So the great life what does it mean to be truly great is a huge, driving question. And the disciples in our passage are right here with us. They are asking amongst themselves, which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? What the scriptures is, are, are doing here is allowing these disciples who are kind of the butt of a lot of jokes, who are like, oh boy, I can't believe they said it. But all they're doing is they're saying the quiet part out loud, right? Every single one of us, probably a few times today, has already made comparisons for the sake of feeling like you're a little bit better than someone else. Because that's part of feeling like you're on the path of the great life. I mean, every single one of us are caught up in the allure of of titles or influence or status or, or possessions, the world has done a great job of making the great life what you become, what you have, what you accomplish. And I don't think any of us are entirely accepted from that pursuit. But as we deal with the way that the world promotes greatness, I was struck by uh, a, a, a poem I love called um, "Ozymandias," and this poem was written by a, a woman named Percy Shelley uh, in 1821, and she wrote it because archaeology had just boomed in uh, in the 17th century, and uh, all of these discoveries of uh, Egyptian artifacts had started uh, surfacing from Egypt. And there was this gigantic, imposing statue that had crumbled to the ground and been been buried halfway by the sand that had an inscription on it, calling it the King Ozymandias. And until 1798, when the statue was discovered, Ozymandias was somebody nobody knew, at least for hundreds of years. And so this poet, Percy Shelley, looks at these ruins and she is compelled to to put into words a poem that that I think describes the world's pursuit of greatness. She writes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal rack, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. See, that poem is capturing the great irony, the great lie of the world's Pursuit of greatness. Because true greatness does not get buried. True greatness does not become rusted or forgotten. And every single thing that the world is teaching you to pursue for true greatness will end with you in a box buried in soil. Your greatness will not last if it is the greatness that Ozymandias pursues. So, in our passage today, Jesus offers in the gospel a greatness that never loses its reward. That is what Jesus is going to focus on for us today, a greatness in the gospel that never loses its reward he wants us to grasp this. And this is going to require a paradigm shift of how we pursue greatness. The gospel offer in our passage offers true greatness by changing the way we pursue greatness. And I want us to go through this passage to see three different ways that the gospel's true greatness comes by by, uh, changing the way that we pursue true greatness. All right? And it is, it is grasping these that sets you free from the, 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 the pursuit and the envy and the rivalry that exists in the world. And it is also the way that you are set free to live a life that amounts to true greatness. Are you interested in the way of greatness that the, the gospel offers? Well, here's how the gospel changes our pursuit to true greatness. First, it changes us uh, by living from justification, not for justification. The gospel changes the way we pursue greatness by changing our life, being, uh, by changing us to living from justification rather than for justification. And I'll explain what this means here as we go through uh, the first couple of verses of, of our passage. So Jesus is taking his disciples through Galilee. And, and, and we know that Jesus has done a majority of his ministry in Galilee. He's done his miracles. He's done his exorcisms. He's uh, done his teaching. He's had these great crowds. But when we, we read the word Galilee here in this passage, Jesus is trying to sneak through, right? He is not interested in more public ministry. He's not interested in more crowd building and more wonders and amazement. He is trying to slip through Galilee. And the reason is that Jesus has set his face for Jerusalem. He has gone from the period of his ministry where he is making himself known through his teaching and his works to now the, the second and ultimate part of his ministry, which is taking the walk, the long walk to Jerusalem where his mission of giving his life for the, as a ransom for sinners is to be fulfilled. And so Jesus is not going through Galilee to, to develop a crowd, he's, he's passing through Galilee because it's on the way. And so we see Jesus is absolutely driven by his mission to get to Jerusalem where he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's where uh, Jesus' teaching is focused. He says there in in, uh, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is the second time that Jesus has uh, explained what's going to happen in Jerusalem. This is the second time that the disciples have heard it and, and not understood. But Jesus is, is saying this again and again so that eventually it will make sense. Even though at this time it, it doesn't. In in verse 32, we're told that at this point, the disciples did not understand the saying, right? And yet, I believe that what we have in this statement, the disciples did not understand the saying, is the author, Mark, kind of speaking at two different levels. He is telling us what is the level of understanding of the characters in the story of the disciples at this time. But in saying at this time, they did not understand He is whistling to the reader, but you understand. You don't lack the understanding that they have. You know what is going on here. The disciples may not be ready, but Mark expects his readers to understand. His readers are on the other side of all of the things that Jesus does in Jerusalem, and they have become Christians in response to that gospel. And so when we see this word, understand we have to ask ourselves, do we understand why Jesus died and rose again? Do we understand? We cannot claim the ignorance of the disciples. You see, when, when, when Jesus describes what is about to happen, he says that he is going to be, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and killed. Now, if you pay attention to the grammar, the word delivered there, is in the passive tense. And the whole reason that there is a passive tense is because there, it, it points to the subject of the verb as not inside the sentence itself. The subject of delivered is not in the sentence. We have to ask ourselves, who is the one doing the delivering? Who, who delivered the Son of Man? The sentence doesn't tell us. But as we uh, get more and more familiar with the grammatical and and, uh, literary work of the Bible, we discover that there is a strong pattern in Scripture for using the passive to reveal the work of God. It is so common in the Bible that that we uh, often refer to it as the divine passive. Whenever there is something done that is significant and it's put in this strange passive tense, the the biblical writer is saying, look outside the plane of the history and see a work of God happening here. And that is exactly what the word delivered is doing to the one who is paying attention. It is in the passive voice to say that the one who puts the Son of Man into the hands of those who kill him is God himself. God gave up his son to die. This is a profound and kind of tremble-inducing truth of the gospel. Jesus did not get killed by men who took advantage of him or took hold of him. He was given over. To death. He was given over to the crucifixion because inside of all of this horrible stuff is the divine will that Jesus would suffer to be a ransom for many. And so that that, that passive tense is telling the, the reader: do you understand that Jesus' death and resurrection was key to our justification? You see, in in saying God gave his son to die, we need to say, why? Why does God allow this terrible thing? Or even more forcefully, why does God give his son to this terrible thing? And we can go to other passages of Scripture. There are plenty, but maybe the choicest of them is Romans chapter 3, where Paul lays this out. Uh, for us, the why was God, was Jesus given over to the cross, and here Paul explains the gospel he says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. that all includes every one of us, none of us have greatness that justifies us in front of God. God is full of glory, and every single one of us have." lost our glory in sin. And so in front of God, we do not stand on our own greatness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by his grace as a gift, i.e. it is not earned, it is given. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now that word propitiation, we don't use that very often, but that is a satisfying sacrifice. Basically, Jesus was put forward to satisfy the righteousness of God for all of the sins that we have committed that have caused us to fall short of the glory of God. So all that has disqualified us from heaven, all of our sins, our disobedience, our acts of rebellion, our selfishness, all of those things were paid for by Jesus dying on the cross, and that payment for those sins satisfies God's justice perfectly so that God can now see everyone who has received Jesus as justified as right in his sight as able to be in heaven with God that's the good news and how is the good news given to us Jesus does all the work and we receive that work by faith which is a way of saying we can do nothing to justify ourselves All we can do is put ourselves in the one who did everything to justify us. And that is the free gift of the gospel. The son given, the son given is what justifies us. Sins are canceled because Jesus went to the cross and we are made righteous in Christ by faith alone. So why, why, why do we pursue greatness? I want us to recognize that this pr- pr- pursuit of greatness is not that strange to the Bible, and it's actually uh, laying right in the same area that Jesus is talking about here with his, his death and resurrection. Why is greatness so important to us? Greatness, feeling like you are great or doing great or have lived a great life is how you answer the question, am I okay? How am I doing? The, 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 the pursuit of greatness is, is giving us a sense of significance, a sense of meaning, a sense of security. Let me boil all of those words into one thing that greatness is about. Greatness gives justification. The way that we say I'm okay is we point to the things that we've done. How good we've been. How successful we've been. How influential we've been. How many titles we've accumulated. We use that to speak to our uh, uh, screaming conscience. You're okay. Look at what you've done. You're significant. You're secure. This is the world's offer of justification. And here's the, the boiled down word for the pursuit of justification in the world, the pursuit of greatness in the world. It is this word, do. If you want to be justified, if you want to be great in this world, it boils down to do. Do more, do better, do faster. <laughs> do do uh, that, that neat thing or do that bigger thing. By this, it's all due. But here's what the gospel says when it says you need to be justified. When the gospel says you need to be justified, it says receive. Receive. You don't have to do anything to be justified by God. All you have to do is to receive what Jesus has done for you. And so when we take in the gospel, it changes our entire life from being people who are working for our justification by doing to people who are living from our justification because we have received everything that we need to stand before God. So we are pivoted from being people who have to do to be great to people who receive all that we need and therefore we work from justification. You see, the good news of justification, you do not have to make yourself somebody because through Jesus you are a child of the king. There is no higher you can go than being the child of the king. And so if you have been living on the grind of making yourself somebody or keeping yourself somebody, the good news is you've been given the childhood of the king. You are somebody. You are somebody. And that does a profound thing in the way that we are able to live our life because that sets us free from building ourselves up and can instead release us to putting others before ourselves. This is the second change that the gospel offers as we pursue greatness. It calls us to putting others before ourselves. All right? So the irony in this passage, and I, I think Mark has a sense of humor. Jesus just lays out this, this massive statement of his sacrifice, this terrible statement of his Impending death, and the disciples don't understand, but they don't talk about it. Instead, they kind of whisper amongst each other, and they're like, "So, which one of us do you think he likes the best? (laughs) Which one of you? Which one of us do you think is uh, is the best among us? Who's who is greatest? Who who amongst us is the greatest? I mean, Jesus is laying himself out as a sacrifice." and they are caught up in self-absorption, all right? Now, I, I, I think when you have this, this dialogue of who is the greatest, you know, you got these 12 disciples here, and, uh, and, and we've been following through the story, and I think at this particular juncture in the story, some are hearing the, the uh, question, who is the greatest? And, uh, and that's a threatening question. They're feeling very fragile, you know? Uh, Peter, just a couple verses ago, was called Satan. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's going to, when Jesus calls you Satan, that's going to rock you a bit. So he might be a little bit unsure of, you know, where, where he stands. Nine other disciples just finished falling flat on their face trying to heal this young boy with the demon and made a total mess of it. So we have nine people who are, are, are uh, fresh off of ministry failure. But then some people might be hearing the question, who is the greatest? And they're, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. I mean, we have a couple of disciples that, that went up and saw the transfiguration. I mean, that, that's got to put me high on the list of being, uh, being pretty, pretty great. You know, and, and Judas is probably over there. And he's like, well, he put me responsible for the money. So, I mean, he's got to think I'm pretty great. Uh, he's, he's, he put me with a lot of authority, right? And so some people are, are here in the question, who is the greatest, are feeling fragile, and some are feeling confident. But it's interesting how this, this question works. If you, if you go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, you get kind of a, a window into the, the, the way of thinking that is being uh, shared by the disciples here. And Jesus gives this disciple, he says, now, he told a parable to those who were invited, When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that their host comes to you, may say, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable is is, is taking from the slice of life something that, that was just the way everybody looked at themselves in a group. They all figured out where they were by where they sat. And so everybody in this society was angling for a better place at the table. A better place at the table was, was the way they evaluated who is the greatest. And so these disciples are kind of doing the same thing in talking about who is the greatest. Where, where do we sit next to Jesus? How close are we to Jesus? Is that any different than us? We are all trying to get to the head of the table, right? Why not? Head of the table, that's that's where the best conversation is. That's that's where all of the privileges is. That's where the the first pour of the wine bottle happens. I mean, that's the best place at the table, right? Um, We are all trying to get to the head of the table, whether it be through our titles or our connections, being part of the inner ring. That's true of pastors. If you were in a room of uh, three or four or five pastors... And you just allowed the first minute of conversation to be recorded. I guarantee every one of those pastors, before the first minute of the conversations is over, has told everyone how big their church is. That's just that's pastors are always comparing their churches. I have a hundred. I have fifty. Uh, whatever. And uh, and 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 pastors kind of feel when they're together a ranking according to how many people they have in their church. It's it's very fleshy. It's very prideful. But that is true of pastors. What's your angle to the top of the table? What's your go-to brag? What's your go-to claim to being somebody? That's that's wired in us, and that's what the pastors are doing, or the, uh, the, the disciples here are doing. And what does it lead to? You have you have some of these disciples are feeling fragile. I mean, they're they're probably growing in despair, and you have some of these disciples that are growing in in, a, in a feeling like they're somebody, and so they're growing in pride. And this is the key thing about self justification. Whatever we use to say that we are somebody, whatever we use to measure whether we are somebody is our self-justification. And self-justification leads to one of only two places. It leads to two possibilities. It can either lead you to the hell of despair. I'm not somebody. I'm not great. My failures are greater than my successes. I can't do anything about it. That's the hell of despair. The other place it can lead you is the hell of pride. I did it all by myself. I am awesome. I wake up in the morning and I urinate excellence, as they say in uh, Ricky Bobby. Either way, you are in self-justification put into a hellish place of either despair or pride, and both of those are great chasms from the comfort of the gospel. And so what does Jesus do to his disciples as he's watching them argue and some of them are falling into despair and some of them are falling into pride. All of them are participating in self-justification. What does Jesus do? He brings into their midst a child. He brings a little child. Now, children did not run the world in the first century. They did not mail out Amazon holiday catalogs to the children in the first century. The children in the first century were the least significant, the least regarded people in society. They were not considered really persons. They were just considered (laughs) uh, noise and and, uh, extra mouths to feed. They were not privileged at all. They were the most insignificant, the most overlooked, the least considered people you could imagine. All right? Children were absolute nobodies. If you wanted to define what is nobody, it would be a child. That's just the way the culture looked at it. But there's something surprising about a child. They are absolute nobodies. They are absolutely not great. They are as far down the spectrum of influence and impressiveness and greatness as you can be. But Still, in a healthy family, a child is secure in love, right? So Jesus brings it it, it, to himself to the closest place. He wraps his arms around a child in the middle of a conversation about which one of us is closest to Jesus, which one of us has the seat, the best seat at the table. Jesus puts a complete nobody right here and wraps his arms around him. And he uses this child to teach something very important. In fact, he uses this to teach two intertwined lessons. The first is, as my disciple, you are like a child, which is to say you are last of all in this world. Nobody's going to look at you as a somebody because you are my disciple. And then second, as my disciple, you are to be like me and love the very least which is to say you are to be a servant of all, even the nobodies, like children. I want to expand on on those two points because they're so important. So number one, as my disciple, you are like a child. You see, this child is the closest to Jesus and his arms are wrapped around Jesus. And so like a child, your justification. Is by unconditional love. Your justification, your right to be in front of Jesus is not by what you have done, not by what you have accomplished, not by the title on your name. It is by His unconditional love. This child that He has in front of Him is a nobody in and of themselves. He is not great, but he is secure in love. He is in the arms of Jesus. And this is what I want you to know is true of you, disciple of Jesus. As his children, yes, we are little, but we are also held close. You may not be a somebody in the eyes of the world, but Jesus Wraps his arms around you and he loves you unconditionally. His love is so unconditional that we have nothing to worry about. Now, think about a child, a child that grows up in a, in a home that is uh, approximating that unconditional love. A, a child in that kind of house hardly thinks of themselves, they hardly think of themselves, they, they have very little self awareness. They don't don't spend time worrying. They don't spend time planning. They just enjoy the moment because they are secure, and they hardly think of themselves. You see, whereas self-justification leads to self-absorption, justification in Christ leads to self-forgetfulness. When you know your love is unconditional, when you know there is nothing you can do to lose God's love, to lose his arms wrapped around you, you could forget about a lot of the stuff that you have to think about. You're, You're somebody. You're loved. You don't have to think about propping yourself up and making yourself more impressive. And that's why a lot of times you can see children being some of the most generous people. They just give stuff away because they don't even think about what they're giving because it just it's, it's, it's just not even theirs. They're, they're often happy to share their toys. They're often happy to share whatever they have. They just are generous. I know there's exceptions, but there is a lot of generosity that comes from children because they are generally not self-aware. So the second part of, of this child and their means, as my disciple, you're to be like me and love the very least— It flows out of that. You see, justification changes us from being me centered to other centered. When you are not living in self absorption, but you are living in Christ's justification and self forgetfulness, then you're not me centered. You're other centered. You are happy to give yourself away. That's why Jesus says that to, to, to be the, the greatest is to be last of all and servant of all. I don't think there's a better picture of what, it, what last of all and servant of all flowing out of a sense of the unconditional love of God uh, can be found than, than when we go to John chapter 13 and see Jesus' own living out of this truth. John 13, 3-5 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into, hand, into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. You see, Jesus is fully aware of who He is and the unconditional love of God and all that He shares with God. His, his position is as secure as possible. He knows who He is in God. This person completely settled in his position with God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The Lord of glory took the position of a slave on the floor. Because doing so was not a humiliation, was not a debasement, was not a decrease of who he was. Who he was was so secure and so well established that he could give himself as a slave to his disciples and feel no loss in himself for doing so. You see, this is the gift of justification. You don't have to say, well, I look stupid. Will I look foolish? Will this be humiliating to me? No, you just have to say, will this love somebody? And you are set free to love. Because there's nothing you can lose in what you give away that you don't have 10,000 times more in Jesus. This is why Justification allows us to go from uh, ourselves first to others first. I'm going to skip ahead just to, so, Well, yeah, I'm going to skip ahead. <laughs> Let's go to number three. The third uh, uh, change that the gospel offers as we pursue greatness is uh, that it changes us so that we can honor Christ and others above differences. So we come to to verse 38, and John, um, remaining pretty thick in the head, said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So John, who uh, is is, uh, uh, trying to to be great in Jesus' eyes, sees somebody having success right after they came out of a a, a scene of failure, not being able to exercise somebody. And so he's seeing success, and the disciples aren't. And I'm sure that stings a bit. So he says, I told him to stop it. Because he was not following us. (laughs) He needs to to be like us before he can go and and do uh, his own exorcisms. Now, this passage is not talking about false teachers, Uh, It's not talking about somebody out there teaching a different Jesus or a different gospel. That's a whole other story. It is talking about a person who is believing in Jesus and doing ministry in Jesus' name, but not doing it in the same club as the disciples. Right? And so the issue is this guy is, is doing his thing, but he is not following us. And here we see another worldly form of justification. And that is the justification that comes by excluding. We can justify ourselves by, by casting out people who don't make us look as good or allows us to look better uh, by being separate from them. So justification by excluding. We like to disqualify people. We like to make lines. We like to set us for the, versus them. We like to identify uh, other believers faults. We like to cast suspicions on other people's ministries. We like to elevate secondary matters so that they are more important and and worthy of, of separating people. We like to 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 build our our disciples or churches around non-biblical things like who you vote for or what you what you how you view homeschooling or how you view vaccines or any number of things become, this is the, uh, this is the real thing (laughs) that we're all about here, et cetera, et cetera. Those sorts of things become part of a justification by excluding. We are better than that group of people because we're not that group of people. Right? Now we must be precise as we talk about this passage this passage does not mean that there aren't valid disagreements between groups. It is totally fine for Baptists and Presbyterians to have uh, discussions about the right way to administer baptism. That's fine. We can have that conversation. But that conversation goes off the rails when we start saying, you're not really a Christian because you don't have the same view. So we, we, we are not talking about having disagreements. Uh, that, that's healthy. That exists in every family. And it is not speaking about receiving false teachers. Okay, Jesus is not saying welcome anybody in, regardless of who they are. He is not talking about people who are preaching a false gospel or preaching a false Christ. And you can see that uh, is, is, is clear in verse 42. Because in verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to, to sin, to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were thrown around their neck that's exactly what false teachers are all about. Causing people who follow Jesus to fall away from following Jesus by drawing them into sin. So that is not what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about those other disciples who live in, who, who worship in that building over there or that building over there, right? They, they are um, not to be disparaged. We must draw lines where the gospel draws them, but where it doesn't, we shouldn't, Right? So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, we are justified by Christ alone. Nothing else, right? Right? So when it comes to to dealing with other people who are followers of Jesus, we cannot treat as unjustified one whom Christ has justified. This is so important. Anything that we use to say that person is not one of us better be the blood of Christ. It better be an argument about the real gospel. Because if it is not, then we are participating in saying Christ's justification of you is not enough to be justified in front of me. And what does that make us? Right? So uh, I, I have to live with this. In, the, in our fantasy football league, in this small church, uh, I was stunned to discover, and she's not here this morning, that we actually have a Raiders fan in our midst. And, I mean, it's hard to understand how a Raiders fan, you know, uh, can love the same Jesus, right? But they do, <laughs> right? This is, this is, this is a, a, a intentionally a silly example, but we make all sorts of things more important than Jesus' justification when we exclude people for reasons that are not related to Jesus' justification. All right? So what does this mean? We honor Christ in every believer, and Jesus gives us two key examples. We do good as we are able. We offer a cup to whoever needs a cup of water, we don't, we don't uh, exclude them from our kindness and our hospitality. And the second is that we protect fellow believers from grievous sin. We, we, we uh, uh, look after each other's faith, whether they're part of our church or, or, or some other congregation or some other denomination. We make sure that we help one another in the journey of faith and protect one another from falling into grievous sin. So... Jesus sets in front of us a complete paradigm shift of what it means to be great. And really, that is an offer of freedom to anybody who is trapped in the I-have-to-make-myself-somebody view of the world. Jesus says, you are somebody, you are a child of God because I have made you that through my death, burial, and resurrection. When you live in that, You are set free, not to divide people, not to uh, prioritize people, but to love others even more than you love yourself. So how do we live a life that will be truly great? We let the gospel saturate us. We let the truth of the gospel define how we understand ourselves and how we understand one another. And so I wanna finish with a story we started learning about Ozymandias, whose kingdom has been covered in sand. But about 10 years ago, I uh, went to a funeral of a, of a family friend whose name was, was Bill Norton. And uh, he died in his 70s. Um, but when I went to his funeral, a huge room was filled with people who were very different groups of people. We had people different politically, we had people different ethnically, we had people different uh, education-wise, age-wise. The room was full of hundreds of people who were all there wanting to share how this man had offered them a cup of cold water in their life. And in, in the eulogy that was shared about this man, it was, it was shared that he came to faith, and after he came to faith, he began the practice of rolling out of bed every morning straight to his knees and praying, Father, bring someone into my path. I can help today. That simple life in the justification of Jesus, set free to love others, whoever they are, wherever they are, manifested itself in a room of hundreds of people Who saw the beauty of Jesus, the greatness of the gospel, lived out by someone who simply believed and put others before they put themselves. You see, that is a picture of greatness. And that greatness, that room full of people with testimonies, has above it a room in heaven full of angels celebrating the gift of the gospel shown through that man's life. You see, the greatness that the gospel offers is the true greatness that never gets buried, never gets rusted, never loses its reward. Beloved, this is the truly great life. Let us journey together and live it. Amen?